Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, August 24th, 1921, tensions are ratcheting up in Logan County, West Virginia, in the southwest part of the state, not too far from Kentucky in the Appalachian Mountains. This is coal country. And what was simmering and brewing and about to explode was a massive labor dispute between coal miners and coal companies and eventually intervention from the U.S. government. In the coming days, the strikes and protests would evolve into violence and bloodshed, the largest labor uprising in United States history, some 10 to 15,000 and striking miners, and ultimately, as I said, intervention from federal troops. Now, um, there's a lot to be said about what would come to be known as the Battle of Blair Mountain, but it is worth pointing out that one reason we are doing this episode is because over the last couple months, we've done episodes on the Tulsa Massacre, in, also in 1921, and the move bombing in Philadelphia in the 80s. And in both of those, we remarked and talked a little bit about how government-aligned forces or people backed by the government had dropped bombs on American citizens, and we kind of marveled at that and wondered, has this ever happened at other points in American history? And we got a ton of emails from folks saying that, yes, it had. During the Battle of Blair Mountain, President Harding threatened to send in army bombers, and a number of homemade bombs were dropped on protesters from airplanes. So... Uh, thank you, listeners, for suggesting this. This is a remarkable story, and let's get into it now with Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. And our guest for this episode is Anna Sale, host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. Her book is called Let's Talk About Hard Things, and she is also a West Virginia native, so... Uh, someone we've wanted to have on the show for a long time, and that's enough of an excuse. You're from West Virginia. You're on the show. Hi, Anna. Let's talk about Blair Mountain. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I actually love this history and think it's not uh, as broadly known as it should be because it's, it's a stunning mm-hmm. story. It's a stunning story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so within West Virginia, I mean, growing up in school, was there a... Uh, three days on the Battle of Blair Mountain in, in, uh, in eighth grade or something? <laughs> yeah, eighth grade and fourth grade. We did West Virginia history. So definitely I had heard about it. And then the other thing that I think was um, particular to my generation of West Virginia school children is I was in elementary school in the 80s when John Sayles' movie Matewan came out. 
Um, If you have not seen it, it's a really great uh, way to learn about the Battle of Blair Mountain and the the events leading up to it. Um, And also Chris Cooper and David Strathern are in it. And and Will Oldham plays a teenage Appalachian minister. Um, So it was sort of like very much present. I knew about it as a kid. And then when I went back to West Virginia after college, um, I became aware of a local effort to conserve the land where the battle of Blair Mountain had actually happened because it was it was mine company land it was part of it was um, slated to be to be mined mountaintop removal mined so I walked through the hills of where the battle and the march took place and um, there's a local historian Chuck Keeney who's related to Mm. Charles Keeney who was involved um, back a hundred years ago and you could still find he had a collection of things that people had found kind of like Mm. hiking around, um, you know, battle, that signs of battle Mm. just buried in the dirt. Mm. This is such a fascinating story. And just to take us back into 1921, this was an era of considerable labor activism, of radicalism. Um, But it seems to me that this story in particular is so rooted in a local place. And not that it's not Mm -hmm. affected by those global forces. But we're talking about miners who had been you know, mining this land for decades and who were trapped in a system of labor exploitation that, that you really marvel at in, in the 1920s, right? It reminds you of sharecropping in the sense that they're in company towns. Um, they're paid in scrip, um, which is um, not real currency. It can only be used at the company store um, and paid low, low wages. The um, corporations, the mining corporations are beating back any attempt at labor organizing. And they're being backed up by the federal government in their attacks on labor. It's very much, it feels very much like a story from the 1870s and 1880s transplanted into the 1920s. Um, And this does start to simmer with the Maitwan shootout and and it, it is this sort of building and building thing over the course of a couple of weeks, a number of protests, um, you know, sort of roving groups of skirmishes and protests. And then it does culminate in what I think is officially the, you know, the heavy fighting of the Battle of Blair Mountain is towards the end of August and into early September. As I said, you know, some 10,000 men are sort of amassed near the border. They were referred to as the Redneck Army. Uh, you know, always nice to have a nice nickname for, for your group. <laughs> because of red kerchiefs that they wore around their necks. Yes, they yes, had yes. to distinguish the themselves. They had to distinguish yep. themselves from their opposing group. And so that is how they let others know that they were on their side with a red handkerchief tied around their neck. And I have to say, that was like a really powerful fact to know growing up in West Virginia, where you are, you know, mm. very aware of the of of being called a redneck and people being mm-hmm. people seeing you as a redneck and to know that there was this way to really think of that word in a very much more powerful mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I think of just one, the sheer numbers, I mean, we're talking between yeah. 10 to 15,000 uh, labor union workers and that this is like a legit battle this is not just a strike (laughs) or a boycott this is this is bloodshed this bullets are being i mean the rounds of ammunition that's being used um i was shocked that you know as as i grew up i had never heard of this story before i knew about certain labor strikes but not battles and that's exactly really what takes place this is a battle and this is where it feels like World War One is actually important because so many of these strikers um, 
who gathered there were veterans and they had mm-hmm. military issued mm-hmm. rifles and shotguns and they're um, in some ways bringing the war home um, yeah. because they've they've had these experiences um, as soldiers and they're using it to liberate themselves back in the U.S. I mean, I just like I, I'm just think I'm just reflecting on that. Like, imagine you come home for fighting for your country in World War One, and you look around your coal community, your coal camp, and you join with your fellow miners, and you're marching for better conditions, and the federal government brings planes in to quell your protest. Like, yeah. um, well, well, and for, and planes that had been built for World War mm-hmm. One and munitions that were built for World War yeah. One. So it's not just, you know, you're using the tools, you're coming back from war and then the tools of the war that you were uh, taking part in are being used against you. Um, it's just re- remarkable. And, you know, I think, yeah, to, to restate it, I mean, the, the notion of it as a battle, I think, is important to keep in mind. We have, you know, basically a group pinned against the mountain or trapped on a mountain and being attacked and eventually bombarded. So let's let's get to that bombing element of it here um the the local officials call on the federal government to intervene and harding does threaten to basically scramble airplanes from a local base to come what the bombing that ends up happening does appear to be more and this is what happened in tulsa as well but it does appear to be more like private citizens gathering up munitions and flying over and dropping bombs and a lot of these munitions were left over from World War One, They were around because of the war effort. But you get this mix, and we've seen it in so many stories that we've talked about, this mix between state power and, and sort of ad hoc local power. Right, local power that's very much backed up by the state. But, you know, there is a story here of the federal government siding with corporations to attack these workers. But there's also a story about these corporations attacking the government because it was um, detectives that were hired by the mining corporations who killed a local sheriff who mm-hmm. was defending the miners. Um, and I feel like that gets lost in this story in a way yeah. that feels important because to spoil the ending of this, um, some of the miners are brought up on charges of treason yeah. for f- f- fighting back against the federal government. And you're like, well, wait a second. The corporations were killing members of the government as well. Um, so it's a it's a really f- fascinating um, and complex story. Yeah, when you think of the numbers too, I mean, 985 minors are indicted for murder, conspiracy to, consent, to commit murder, accessory to murder, treason against the uh, state of West Virginia. Um, a lot of these people go on to become, you know, acquitted. They have uh, sympathetic juries, you know. Um, but for some people, they serve time, you know. I mean, this is not um, something that goes without punishment in a lot of ways. And it's it's a it's a double sort of slap in the face for people who have just literally tried to fight their exploitation only to be um, slammed back down again by the state. And it does genuinely break up the union. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only a few hundred members of the union at the end of this. The unions don't really come back in a strong way until the 30s. Um, uh, and so, you know, that ultimately, I think, is one of the big, big legacies here. Yeah, I, I just thinking about that timeline, like, so this is happening in the early 20s and then the 30s, the, there's the New Deal, there's this expansion of unionization efforts. And then growing up in the 80s in West Virginia was a time when there was a real, uh, you know, really effective efforts to, to uh, break up the union by, by uh, waiting out strikes. And that was happening when I was a kid. 
And I've been thinking about the United Mine Workers of America with the recent passing of Richard Trumka, mm-hmm. um, who who went on to be the leader of the AFL-CIO, but he started out in the United Mine Workers. So up until his death, just a, f- uh, a week or so ago, you know, mm-hmm a leader who was sort of trained in the trenches right. of the United Mine Workers was at the at the head of the labor movement of this country. So this this history is 100 years old, but it's also quite with us. Yeah. Yeah. And that through line is important too because it it tells you about the importance of whose back the federal government has, mm-hmm. right? When the federal government has the back of the mines, um then they break workers' solidarity pretty quickly because they have the power of the military behind them and the the power to bring charges like treason. In the 1930s, when the federal government is backing unions, they they have real power um, and they're able to build these lasting institutions. And as we talked about on the show a couple weeks ago, in 1981, Ronald Reagan takes on the air traffic control unions and it starts this um, series of attacks on unions, dismantling them, even though the laws haven't really changed, Mm -hmm. but who the president backs Mm -hmm. has changed. And that sort of unleashes all of this pent up anti-union activism. So it's it's it matters a lot where the federal government stands in these stories. Yeah. And who's at the helm of it? Who's president? Who's Mm -hmm. where um, the final sort of source of responsibility or leadership falls to? where the bug stops yeah right and of course you know harding is a part of the tulsa story and part of this i mean we're you know just Mm -hmm. to make it clear this is just a few months after tulsa and i think it's important Mm -hmm. to think of them as both paralleled but also connected um for for all the reasons we've been discussing it just also shows you like and i know we've talked about this before but about like how the country responds to the poorest or the most exploited or or people of color in this country, I think, is a real um, not to use the pun, but canary in the coal mine. You know, let's yeah. know. Like, <laughs> I had to get that in there. I'm sorry, but yeah. like, but in terms of like how people are treated um, at the so-called bottom, I think lets yeah. us know what what um, what matters. You know, and who doesn't. Yeah. So. As we start to wrap up, and I'm curious, you know, around Tulsa, there was a big conversation about historical memory and both the need to put the story of Tulsa into books and to have plaques and markers and really sort of codify the historical memory. But then there was also this other related conversation about the fact that people remember, right? People, black people in Tulsa remember the Tulsa massacre, regardless of whether it's in the history books or not. And I'm curious whether that sort of the contours of that conversation ought to apply here. And if you can talk a little bit about that sort of dynamic between just the stories we tell in codified official ways versus the stories that families in West Virginia, as you said, not that long ago, a uh, couple generations removed from this, uh, keep keep this history alive. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the way that I would answer that question is, you know, when I was a child growing up in West Virginia, it was still... Um, very much a, a, a democratic state where the labor history and the power of labor was was a, a defining force in, in how state politics sort of operated. And, and that has has really changed um, in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. I mean, the legislature flipped um, in 2014 and, and has had Republican control since. And, and so I'm kind of curious, like, I, I, I don't live in West Virginia now, so I wonder what the what the um, 
dialogue around the Battle of Blair Mountain is, is it about uh, the overreach of government and why you shouldn't trust the feds uh, because they're going to come for you when you join together to protect your your families and your community and to fight for yourselves? You know, that that could very well be a narrative. I, I mean, when I was growing up, it was this was a history that we were. Uh, proud of. It felt significant. It felt like an important thing had happened in West Virginia, and we wanted more people to know about it. Um, but certainly there's different ways to tweak the narrative uh, for, for whether it's a story about the the potential of, of labor organizing and what happens when it gets quashed, or is it about why you shouldn't trust strong federal government because they're going to come for you. Um, I would say anybody who's interested should go to the the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, which is a new newish institution that does tell this story locally. Um, you can go to wvminewars.org and, and check it out and just see um, how the people who have thought a lot about the Battle of Blair Mountain and who continue to live and work in West Virginia, how they tell this story. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is the 100th anniversary, I think, as with Tulsa, we'll see, hopefully we'll see a, a bigger conversation. And, and uh, I mean, to your point, actually, you know, how we remember something reflects a lot about our current moment mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the story itself. And so we'll be curious to see. I mean, there is a sort of resurgent conversation about labor. And if this gets fit into that, that might be fascinating um, versus some of the other contours you described. So we've done our part. We've tried to, uh, you know, talk about this really fascinating moment and um, really glad to have had Anna Sale on to do it with us. So, Anna, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the show. And, of course, the podcast is Death, Sex, and Money, and the book is Let's Talk About Hard Things. Go check it out. Um, it is wonderful. And uh, Nicole Hemmer, thanks to you as always. Thanks, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported, artist-owned podcasts. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. You can get in touch with us with any questions or comments or ideas for the show. Email us thisdaypod at gmail.com or you can find a form at thisdaypod.com. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon. Support for this day in esoteric political history comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you'll need to join the millions of others who have switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash this day. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash this day. Odoo, modern management made simple. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is our democracy is broken. We can all feel it and there's data to back it up too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact though? Money. 
You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. 